You're listening to ReachMD, and this is Lipid Illumination, sponsored by the National Lipid Association. I'm Dr. Alan Brown, your host, and I welcome Dr. Kevin Mackey, who is a Ph.D. and Chief Science Officer of BioFortis Clinical Research. Prior to this position, Dr. Mackey served as Chief Science Officer and Director of Nutrition and Metabolism Research for 10 years at the Chicago Center for Clinical Research, and for five years as a research scientist at Edward Hines Jr. Veterans Affairs Medical Center in Hines, Illinois. Dr. Mackey's research is mainly focused on the prevention and treatment of coronary heart disease and diabetes. He's participated in more than 250 clinical trials as an investigator, consultant, or statistician, and published more than 200 scientific papers, books, and book chapters. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you very much for doing this interview. Thank you. My pleasure. I'd like to mention to the audience that we're broadcasting live from the National Lipid Association meeting in New Orleans entitled Lipids Throughout the Lifetime. This is why you may hear some of our attendees in the background. and We've also been able to utilize the live recording session to get some excellent nationally renowned interviewees like Dr. Mackey. So, Kevin, thanks for taking time out of the meeting to talk with us. I want to start talking about the science of obesity, metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes. We've had several interviews on that subject. We really haven't focused so much, though, on the triad of low HDL, high triglycerides, and high LDL associated with that disorder. We spent a lot of time talking about lifestyle modification for the treatment of metabolic syndrome. And you and your colleagues recently published a review paper on the management of hypertriglyceridemia. This is one of those controversial issues among lipid geeks, whether triglycerides should be the principal target of therapy, whether it's an independent risk factor, or uh, whether people with high triglycerides should just have more intensive LDL lowering. So with that lengthy introduction, I'm going to let you talk to us a little bit about atherogenic dyslipidemia. Sure. Well, relating to the issue of whether hypertriglyceridemia is an independent risk factor for coronary heart disease, we've now got some very large meta-analyses, and they fairly consistently show that an elevated level of triglycerides is independently associated with coronary heart disease, even after you adjust for traditional risk factors, particularly HDL cholesterol, which diminishes the association but does not eliminate it. So uh, we have a situation where hypertriglyceridemia is clearly a marker of increased risk, and what we need really is more information on the mechanisms that account for that and information on treatment strategies and how they work in hypertriglyceridemic patients. So let me ask you, Kevin, because I've always thought that, you know, if you look at triglycerides across the whole population, it's been difficult in the past to say it's an independent risk factor. And, and my thought was always that that's because the drinkers of the world who have high HDL and high triglycerides don't seem to be at increased risk for coronary disease. And women on estrogen, for example, who are prone towards triglyceride elevation. They have high HDLs and low LDLs and high triglycerides. And then going back to Helsinki, the people whose LDL to HDL ratio was less than 5 didn't seem to have additional risk. But when you do analyses of trials that predominantly enrolled people with coronary disease, obviously you exclude those patients. So am I wrong about the fact that uh, that was the thing that diluted out the ability to show triglycerides as an independent risk factor? I think there are a variety of reasons, and I think also the population has changed. So back in the uh, 60s and 70s and 80s, you had much less prevalence of obesity and the insulin resistance that comes along with that. And so I think that as the prevalence of obesity has increased, the prevalence of hypertriglyceridemia has increased. 
and also its impact on cardiovascular risk in the population has gone up. And so as the population changes, these relationships may change as well. So can I bug you a little bit about the pathophysiology of atherosclerosis? And, uh, you know, even though we know that particles that t contain a lot of triglycerides like VLDL, intermediate density lipoprotein, chylomicrons, and their remnants can participate in atherosclerosis, it still seems like the major driver is the LDL cholesterol. Am I wrong about that? Well, the question becomes, when you have elevated triglycerides, you may not have an elevated LDL cholesterol level, but you still might have an elevated level of atherogenic particles. So you might have small dense LDL, you might have an elevated level of LDL particles that contain APOC3, which is turning out to be a, a bad actor. And so in addition to triglyceride-rich lipoprotein remnants being potentially atherogenic, we have in people with high triglycerides an elevated level of potentially atherogenic particles and some other things that tend to travel as a pack with high triglycerides, insulin resistance, hypertension, hypercoagulability, and these things may be contributing to the relationship as well. What's the relationship between triglycerides and stroke and how is that relationship the same or different than triglycerides and coronary disease? Well, triglycerides are a stronger risk factor for coronary heart disease than stroke, but still a risk factor for stroke. We have less information about that relationship and its independence from other risk factors, particularly blood pressure. But uh, high triglycerides does seem to be a risk factor for stroke. And in general, elevated triglycerides, low HDL cholesterol seem to be stronger risk factors for heart disease and stroke in women than in men. And LDL cholesterol seems to be a stronger risk factor in men than in women. So you're obviously an expert in statistics. And uh, can, can you just comment a little bit on uh, that relationship that looks like it's stronger in women than in men? Do you think that's real or do you think that is a statistical aberration? Well, it's... Uh, Good question. In women, starting at about the age of uh, menarche, you have an increase in the differential between men and women in HDL cholesterol. So in children, HDL cholesterol is similar. In men at puberty, you see a drop in HDL cholesterol. And then in women, you consistently have a higher level of HDL cholesterol, uh, which narrows after the menopause. So I think that the association of hypertriglyceridemia in women might be partly driven by the interrelationship between HDL metabolism and hypertriglyceridemia. So it may be real, but it is also difficult to tell because statistically, untangling these things is very difficult. They're all highly correlated. So that adds to the confusion about treatment because I know some people feel, you know, when you have hypertriglyceridemia in women, you got to be you know, doubly aggressive because of it being more of a risk factor. I struggle with how to stratify my treatment. I tend to you know, just treat the patients based on their LDL cholesterol and their non-HDL cholesterol. And of course, with very high triglycerides, treat the triglycerides primarily to avoid pancreatitis. Do you have any thoughts on whether we should stratify treatment differently uh, between those two groups? My thought is probably not, and my thought is that if we focus mainly on non-HDL cholesterol, then that is going to be a better indicator of the success of treatment than LDL cholesterol because non-HDL cholesterol takes into account the triglyceride-rich lipoprotein particles 
and in people with elevated triglycerides, uh, you often have an increase in VLDL cholesterol, and that may mask uh, increased risk even if the LDL cholesterol is at uh, what you would generally consider a desirable level. So let's go to the treatment of people with hypertriglyceridemia. We talked a little bit about assessing risk, and you brought up non-HDL. Maybe you could just take a minute and explain to our audience you know, how we calculate non-HDL and what the implications are. Um, and uh, how we use it as a secondary target. And then we'll, we'll talk a little bit about choices and treatment options based on the most recent clinical data. Sure thing. Non-HDL cholesterol is simply calculated as the difference between total cholesterol and HDL cholesterol. And the targets for non-HDL cholesterol are 30 points higher than the targets for LDL cholesterol appropriate for the person's risk category. And what we tend to do in our clinic is focus mostly on non-HDL cholesterol, whether or not the triglycerides are elevated, because when you treat someone to the non-HDL cholesterol goal, you almost always hit the LDL cholesterol goal along the way. But when you treat people to the LDL cholesterol goal, you don't always hit the non-HDL cholesterol goal. So our focus is really on non-HDL cholesterol as the target for treatment, no matter the triglyceride level. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. And I'm your host, Dr. Alan Brown, and I'm here with Dr. Kevin Mackey. So, Kevin, since we think of triglycerides as being a good predictor of high-risk individuals and implying that those patients most likely have lots of atherogenic particles, um, some of the newer trials looking at uh, treatment options suggest that once you've treated LDL aggressively with statins, we may not see too much additional benefit, especially if we've got the LDL around 70, which is what happened in uh, AIM High and uh, they got close in the Accord data. But there's been a little shadow cast on the use of uh, phenofibrates and niacin as add-on therapy. To be fair, a lot of those patients really didn't have high triglycerides uh, when they were enrolled, but uh, as we heard yesterday in some of the sessions that the intention to treat and the enrollment criteria would have suggested that they could enroll higher triglyceride patients. So we've got a confusing time in terms of therapy. So when you have a patient who's got high triglycerides and we've established that those people are at increased risk, now what do we do? Should we focus on statin therapy? And I'll, I'll let you comment. In, in our view, uh, for most patients with triglycerides less than 500, a statin should be the first line of drug therapy. And the reason is that number one, statins are more effective for lowering triglycerides in patients with hypertriglyceridemia than is generally appreciated. Secondly, statins are the most effective compounds for reducing uh, ApoB levels, uh, LDL particle concentration, and non-HDL cholesterol. And so we think that the clinical trial evidence we have although it's not perfect because it's generally from subgroup analyses, would suggest that for most hypertriglyceridemic patients with triglycerides less than 500, and in our opinion even uh, less than 1,000, a statin should be the first line of drug therapy. Having said that, we also agree that for patients with very high triglycerides, 500 or higher, especially if they're 1,000 milligrams per deciliter or higher, that uh, fibrate or fish oil may be an appropriate first-line therapy to get the triglycerides down to prevent pancreatitis. What about the role of niacin? I think, you know, interestingly, a lot of people were using niacin to treat isolated low HDL after their LDL was treated, 
even in those people that did not have very high triglycerides. Do you think the AIM high has kind of put that issue to rest, that we're not going to get benefit from adding niacin to those patients? Well, I think AIM high was small enough that it's difficult to evaluate the subgroups where there might be the most potential for benefit, particularly those with elevated triglycerides and very low HDL cholesterol. Now, having said that, we're in a bit of a limbo period because the HPS2 Thrive general results have been released, but we don't have any subgroup analyses yet. So I wouldn't rule out the possibility that there is benefit in some subgroups, particularly I'm interested in those with elevated triglycerides and low HDL cholesterol, where we seem to see a benefit with fibrate therapy, uh, but we'll have to wait and see what the full results are from HBS2 Thrive. So let's talk about the fibrate subgroup analysis. You know, I, I, I think uh, just listening to what I've been hearing at this meeting, even though the new guidelines aren't published, it seemed like there was going to be a pretty strong push for statin therapy to the, be the major therapy. And the, the subgroup analysis of Accord with triglycerides over 204 and HDL less than 35 seemed to have at least a, the p-value was 0.056 to show that that subgroup with high triglycerides got reduction in cardiovascular events. That was the p-value for the interaction, but if you look at the p-value for that subgroup alone, it does show a benefit with a p of about 0.03. Now having said that, I think we need to be a bit cautious because it's a subgroup analysis, but it's one of five subgroup analyses that show the same set of results, and so this is a hypothesis that really needs to be tested prospectively in a clinical trial that only enrolls those patients with elevated triglycerides and low HDL cholesterol. When you say it's one of five subgroup analyses, there are several other fibrate trials that did with different fibrates that showed that that subgroup seemed to get benefit, right? The group that had low HDL and high triglycerides. Right. Three with the gemfibrozil and one that was also phenofibrate, the field study, which had some design issues that made interpretation difficult, but in that subgroup there looked like there was a benefit. So that should reassure some of our audience because most people aren't using fibrates for people with normal triglycerides. I know there's a small percentage of people that do, but for those who had the triglycerides over 200, despite statin therapy, which was a baseline in the Accord, there seemed to potentially be some benefit. I, I hope we get some future clinical trials to look at that. I, I'm, I'm not super optimistic that anybody's going to do such a trial, are you? Well, I believe the FDA has mandated that a trial be done with uh, phenofibric acid and so I think there will be a trial done when that will start and how large it will be and what the subject characteristics will be is open to question right now. I really appreciate you taking the time away from the meeting to join us on ReachMD today. All right, well, thank you very much. It's my pleasure. I'm Dr. Alan Brown, and you've been listening to Lipid Illumination, sponsored by the National Lipid Association on ReachMD. Be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com lipids, featuring podcasts of this and other series. Thank you very much for listening.